an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's very good to be here at Franciscan University in this year of faith, reflecting with you on the Second Vatican Council and trying to understand more deeply this great and precious gift of God to the Church. Like every gift, it needs to be unwrapped. The Council needs to be studied carefully. And I'm reminded of a story that's told of Monsignor Ronnie Knox, who was Catholic chaplain in the University of Oxford in the 1920s, a biblical scholar, a famous preacher. On one occasion, apparently, he had given a sermon on the Trinity, and two ladies came up to him afterwards and said, Monsignor Knox, thank you very much for that sermon. We've always been confused about the Trinity. Oh, I'm so pleased, he said, so you're not confused now. Oh, we're still confused, they said, but at a much higher level. <laughs> it's particularly good to be speaking on one of the Council's most important documents, Lumen Gentium, in this Easter season. Christ our light is the Church's proclamation as the Paschal candle is held up at the Easter Vigil. And it's the Council's proclamation at the start of Lumen Gentium. Hence my title this evening, Christ Our Light, Lumen Gentium and the Program of Vatican II. We're also at the start of a new pontificate, when the Church begins a new phase of its pilgrim journey with a new Holy Father. It was one month ago today that Pope Francis was elected. And it's already clear that he himself wants us to focus afresh on Christ, risen and glorious, loving and merciful. So this is a great time to take up again this very important text, the Council's Charter for the Church, and to study it. And I hope that to accompany my talk this evening, you have the sheet which is entitled Lumen Gentium, which has various points, various quotes, various pieces of information, and a diagram at the bottom that I shall explain in due course. The Council produced 16 documents in all, with varying degrees of importance. The most significant are the four so-called constitutions, the pillars of the Council's teaching, and Lumen Gentium is one of those four key texts. Officially, it's the dogmatic constitution on the Church. How do those four key documents fit together? I'd like to start with that question, because it will help us to get our bearings overall, and then I'll turn to some particular points from Lumen Gentium itself. Points which I happen to think that Pope Francis is really going to help us to appreciate and to put into practice. Lumen Gentium means the light of the nations. But as I've already indicated, the document doesn't say that the church is the light of the nations. No. The opening words which give the document its name are, and there they are, number one on your chart, Lumen Gentium cum sit Christus. 
since Christ is the light of the world, it is the church's task to transmit that light. And so the document starts with a firm focus on Christ himself, and it immediately looks outwards to the world. We might recall the words of St. John's Gospel, God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son. If we are members of the body of Christ, as St. Paul taught and Lumen Gentium strongly reiterates, then we are necessarily caught up in that movement of love for the world. Jesus sent his followers out at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. And one of the leading bishops at the council, Cardinal, Cardinal Suenens from Belgium, said early in the council, and this is number two there, that the central question for the whole council could simply be this. How is the church of today measuring up to that last command of the master? The whole church, he said, must be put on a mission footing. That relationship between the church and the world is so important that the council devoted another of its major texts, the pastoral constitution, Gaudium et Spes, on the church in the modern world, specifically to it. So there are two great documents on the church, Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes, and they obviously go together. It's sometimes said that Lumen Gentium deals with the church ad intra, the church in itself whereas Gaudium et Spes deals with the church ad extra, looking out into the world. Well, that's true up to a point, but as we've already seen, Lumen Gentium itself starts by looking outwards, so the accent throughout is well and truly on mission. Yes, Lumen Gentium does mainly deal with the church's inner reality, its nature and structure, but it does so with a view to making the church fit for its purpose, which is to spread the good news. The Archbishop of Krakow during the council, a certain Karol Wojtyła, who subsequently became Pope John Paul II, said soon after the council, and there it is, number three, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, which determines the inmost nature of the church, is in fact the redemption of the world. So the church's inmost nature treated in Lumen Gentium is actually determined by the redemption of the world. The church, in other words, is essentially outward-looking, as Gaudium et Spes emphasized, and Lumen Gentium already recognized. And Lumen Gentium's main task was then to describe the inner reality of such a church. The church, said Cardinal Suenens, and it's number four there, is Christ living today in his mystical body. It is Christ, our contemporary. Again, notice the emphasis on the person of Christ. The church's task is to bear witness to Christ in the world and even in some sense to be Christ in the world. Now, if that is our task, 
then it follows that we must be firmly anchored in Christ ourselves in order to have any hope of fulfilling our task. And here I'm already starting to look down at that diagram. It shows, as you can see, the church, that circle there in the middle, the church in the world needing to be anchored in Christ there at the center where there's a cross. Now we encounter Christ in word and sacrament, the scriptures and the liturgy. But are those two wellsprings of our life in Christ really functioning well? Do we read and know and pray the scriptures, finding nourishment and wisdom there? Or does the Bible just gather dust on our shelves? Do we celebrate the liturgy, and especially the Mass, as life-giving encounters with Christ? Does the Mass fire us as the two disciples on the road to Emmaus were fired, so that our hearts burn within us as the Lord explains the Scriptures to us and breaks bread with us? Or is the Mass simply a routine and a duty that somehow is required of us? Those other two constitutions, De Verbum, you see, DV on Revelation, and Sacrosanctum Concilium, SC on the liturgy, were intended to enliven our contact with the living Lord in word and sacrament, respectively, precisely so that we can then bear lively witness to Christ in the world. So, I have tried to depict on the diagram, that interrelationship between the texts, those four key constitutions, the relationship that I've just been describing, with the initials there of the relevant documents. You see what I'm suggesting? That the four constitutions fit closely together. Through vital contact with Christ in word and sacrament, the church and its members are to be strong in him and to carry his light out into the world. The council's emphasis is on the person of Christ encountering the people of today in and through the persons who make up the church. The council's vision is therefore profoundly personal. In the middle of the council, on the 19th of October 1964 to be precise, Vatican Radio broadcast a talk in Polish by Archbishop Wojtyła, and he made the following very significant comment, and it's number five. Although none of the completed constitutions or directives has the human person as its specific topic, the person, he said, lies deep within the entire conciliar teaching that is slowly emerging from our labors. Remember, the council ran from 62 to 65, so this was just beyond halfway, but still another full year to run. The human person, he said, must find a suitable place in the council's teaching. Whence will flow the proper place of the person in the work of the church? And this will be an enormous contribution, he said, as far as the pastoral aim of the council is concerned. 
In short, we might say, as far as he was concerned, it's the fact that the council was about persons that made it fundamentally pastoral in its orientation. As we look at the Council's four constitutions, that personal emphasis really stands out and unites them even more intimately with one another. Big and complex topics like Revelation, the Liturgy, the Church are reframed with wonderful simplicity and clarity and urgency. First of all, Revelation is not primarily a set of propositions a set of facts that God has revealed and that we need to accept with our minds? No. Have a look at number six there. De Verbum teaches that Christ himself is both the mediator and the sum total of revelation. God hasn't sent a message to humanity. He has sent his own son. As I sometimes say to my students, it wasn't a book that was lying in the manger. It was a baby. And the faith that God seeks from us in response is not just an intellectual assent, but a response of the whole person. By faith, says the council, man freely commits his entire self to God. It's all about persons responding to the person of Christ. He is the light of the world, lumen gentium, as we've seen. And the most prominent image for the church itself in the document of that name is the people of God. The whole of chapter 2 of lumen gentium is given over to that theme. As you can see, if you just flip over the page, on the right-hand side at the back, I've put a list of the contents of lumen gentium. There you see, chapter 2, the people of God. Again, the emphasis is personal. On the flesh and blood, historical human beings, the people of God, who respond to Christ in continuity with the people of Israel in former times, and who look to the fullness of life with Christ in the future, in God's kingdom. There's a strong sense of being pilgrims, full of hope. Just have a look at number seven there. All those who in faith look towards Jesus, the author of salvation and the principle of unity and peace, God has gathered together and established as the church, says Lumen Gentium. That's a wonderful image of persons gathered in joy and trust around the person of Christ in response to his preaching. And that same section of Lumen Gentium gives us two other key notions. The church, that gathering of persons, is, says the council, and this is still in number seven there, a communion, a communion of life and love and truth. Communion, koinonia in Greek, is a very rich word referring primarily to God's own life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Being made in the image of such a God, we ourselves are made for communion with God and with one another. Sin breaks us apart as self-centered atoms, but God's grace calls us back into love, 
generosity and unity. You might say sin scatters and grace gathers. And the church is the beginning of the gathering of God's kingdom. As such, the council says, the church is, and we're still in number seven, there's lots floating around there in number seven, the church is a most sure seed of unity, hope, and salvation for the whole human race. In a fractured world, in other words, the fellowship and communion of the church's members is meant to be a sign of grace and hope, a sign of the grace of God at work in the world. And what's more, not just a sign, but a sign which actually contains the grace of God and makes it available, especially in the sacraments. So, and here's the other key notion, the church itself, in a rather wonderful way, can be considered as a big sacrament, a great sacrament in the world, an outward sign of inward grace, making Christ present for the people of today. He is the light of the nations, as we've seen. But, and here is just finishing the, uh, what's in number seven there, the church, says the council, is taken up by him as the instrument for the salvation of all. And as the light of the world and salt of the earth, the church itself is sent forth into the whole world as a visible sacrament of saving unity. A wonderful, dense phrase, full of meaning. So the church is a gathering, and it goes out to gather some more. In its constitution on the liturgy, the council teaches that the goal of apostolic endeavor is that all who are made children of God by faith and baptism should come together to praise God in the midst of the church and to take part in the sacrifice and to eat of the Lord's Supper, Sacrosanctum Concilium, number 10. So the church goes out to gather in. It goes out to gather in. That's like the heartbeat of its life, centered on the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the source and the summit of the church's life, as Lumen Gentium says in another well-known phrase, number eight there. And that's why there are dotted arrows coming back in to Christ and the church in the diagram at the bottom. Because the church goes out to gather in. And what of the Eucharist? What of the liturgy? Again, the council's view is personal. Liturgy is not primarily a set of ceremonies by which we give honor and glory to God. It's not, in fact, primarily anything that we do. Liturgy is actually the praise and glory that Christ himself gives to his Father, especially through his sacrifice on the cross. And we, as members of his body, have the immense privilege of sharing and being drawn into his worship. Again, the focus is on the person of Christ, and in this case, his priestly action. Liturgy, says the council, and this is number nine, is rightly seen as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. 
Christ always associates the church with himself in this great work in which God is perfectly glorified and human beings are sanctified. And the result is that full public worship is performed by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, head and members. That's what the church's liturgy is. Pope John XXIII set the tone for that emphatic focus on Christ in the Council's main texts. In his opening address to the Council on the 11th of October 1962, Christ, he said, is ever resplendent as the centre of history and of life. And human beings are either with him, enjoying light and peace, or without him suffering confusion and conflict. Everyone needs to meet Christ. And this is what the Council's final document, the Great Constitution, Gaudium et Spes, expresses in a very famous passage, and it's number 10 there. It is only in the mystery of the Word made flesh, says Gaudium et Spes, that the mystery of man truly becomes clear. Christ, the new Adam, in the very revelation of the mystery of the Father and of his love, fully reveals man to himself and brings to light his most high calling. In his first encyclical letter, Redemptor Hominis, Pope John Paul called that a stupendous text from the Council's teaching. And he used it to state in one sentence what the whole purpose of the church is. Number 11, over the page. The church, he said, wishes to serve this single end, that each person may be able to find Christ, in order that Christ may walk with each person the path of life. Isn't that a wonderful, beautiful, simple, profound summary of what the church is all about. And again, notice, it's cast in terms of persons. And in exactly the same line, Pope Francis said to ecumenical representatives the day after his inauguration that what he called the core message of the council was the need to proclaim to the men and women of our time the personal transforming encounter with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose for our salvation. Like a musical quartet then, the four great constitutions of the Council all combine in their reflection on the person of Christ, sent as the light of the nations to gather human beings into his own praise and thanks to the Father as members of the church. It's a magnificent, harmonious vision. The church, the gathered people of God, is a communion of life and love and truth, and a great sacrament in and for the world. Indeed, you might well say it is a sacrament of communion. As I said a moment ago, the source of all communion is God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And so the council says, quoting St. Cyprian from way back in the third century, and this is number 12 there, that the church is a people brought into unity from the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That linking of the church with the Trinity, the greatest mystery of all, is a truly profound teaching of the council. And it has multiple consequences. Just as there is no Trinity without all three persons, so the council taught that all the members of the church are endowed with grace and gifts. All are important and all are called to action. And let's just note how momentous such a vision was. For most of the second millennium, the church was understood as a pyramid topped by the Pope, who had the fullness of power. The bishops and the priests occupied lower tiers in the pyramid, and the people were at the bottom, rather passive and powerless. Pope Gregory XVI put it succinctly in the early 19th century. No one, he said, can overlook the fact that the church is an unequal society in which God has destined some to command and others to obey. The latter are the laity, you guessed it, while the former are the clergy. End of quote. The first draft of the council's document on the church, and I've put the first draft on the left-hand side there so you can just make a comparison. You see the first draft, 1962, the final draft on the right, 1964. The first draft that was presented to the bishops in 1962 reflected that very juridical and institutional picture that I've just mentioned, basically inherited from the second millennium, and the bishops basically threw it out. It wouldn't do. We hear a lot during election season, do we not, about parties needing to energize the base. Well, it could be said that Vatican II wanted to energize that passive and powerless base in the old pyramid and to transform the understanding of the church. Its driving vision was the one I outlined earlier, not so much the pyramid, but a communion of life and love and truth. And that understanding gradually asserted itself as the council engaged in long and sometimes dramatic debate and revised and reshaped the text into its final form. It took two years, as you can see, 62 to 64, and four major drafts to get from what's on the left to what was finally acceptable on the right. The first major redraft led with the new idea that the church is a mystery. Not in the Sherlock Holmes sense, but in the sense that the church is much more than just an institution. It is an integral part of God's mysterious plan to save humanity by sharing his life with us. An Orthodox theologian, John Zizulus, once wrote the following. The church is not simply an institution. She is a way of being. The council would agree. 
the church collectively participates in God's own communion life as Father, Son, and Spirit. It truly is a new way of being. And then the second redraft made a decisive shift in the order of the chapters, dealing with the hierarchy and the people of God, respectively. It decided not to treat the hierarchy first and then the people in a top-down pyramid fashion, but to treat the people of God first, which after all includes the hierarchy as baptised disciples of the Lord, and then to treat the hierarchy to show that the hierarchy are first of all baptised Christians alongside their brothers and sisters, and then they are called to a ministry of service within that communion or fellowship. As St. Augustine once said to his people, for you I am a bishop, with you I am a Christian. We can see the effect of those two shifts in the chapters in that final text on the right. There's chapter 1 on the mystery of the church, followed by chapter 2 on the people of God, and then chapter 3 on the hierarchy. One of the outstanding ways in which Lumen Gentium energised the base, highlighted the importance and dignity of all, and so transformed the image of the church into one of collaboration, communion and cooperation was by teaching that all the baptized share in different and complementary ways in the three offices of Christ as priest and prophet and king respectively. For a thousand years, as I said a minute ago, the members of the church had been differentiated on the basis of power or rather two powers, power of order and power of jurisdiction, both of which the clergy had to varying degrees, while the people had neither. They were powerless, as I said. Now the council doesn't use that language of powers at all. Instead of powers possessed by the clergy alone, what the council talked of was three officers in which everyone, clergy and laity, participate in their own specific ways. There's no sort of muddying of the distinction here, but everyone has a role to play. Everyone is active in the church. They're the three officers of Christ himself, and because all the members of the church are members of his body and participate in his life, all members of the church have a share of some sort in all three of those offices. Correspondingly, by their exercise of those three offices, all of the faithful, and not just the monks and the nuns and the religious who have taken vows, are called to holiness. And just as chapter 3 on the hierarchy follows chapter 2 on the people of God to show that the hierarchy serves the people of God, so in the final draft there, you see the listing of chapters, chapter 6 on the religious who take vows and are publicly committed to the pursuit of holiness follows a very notable chapter 5 on the universal call to holiness to express the fact that religious, the people we normally think of as having a vocation, are really meant to promote the vocation that all Christians actually have. 
namely, the call to live a holy life. Chapter 7 of Lumen Gentium, you see it there, deals with the pilgrim church and was specially inserted because of Pope John's emphasis that the saints who have gone before us encourage us and help us by their intercession as we strive to follow them. And then Lumen Gentium concludes fittingly with an eighth and final chapter on the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is the perfect model of holiness and the sign already by her assumption of the fullness of heavenly life, body and soul, to which everyone is called. So there's an emphasis throughout this rich and harmonious text on the fullness and fellowship of the church, all of whose members are called to share in the fullness and fellowship of God's own life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's an emphasis, in other words, on what Joseph Ratzinger, until recently Pope Benedict, often calls the we of the Christian life. It's not about I and me, he often says, it's about us and we. Already at the end of the council, he wrote, and it's number 14 there, Although the Christian faith has stressed the importance of the individual who is called to eternal life, yet the I is in all things fitted into a more comprehensive we, from which and for which it lives. And the deep down reason for that accent on communion, on we instead of I, is because Christ gives us a participation in the life of God. And God, as Ratzinger says, comprises the we of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our God is one in the plentiful reality of divine love, he says. In that light, I'd like in the remaining time this evening just to look a little more closely at two very notable contributions of Lumen Gentium. First of all, that idea I've just been mentioning that all the faithful share in their respective ways in the three offices of Christ and so are closely united with one another. And second, the idea that the bishops themselves are closely united in a college with a collective responsibility for the church. In both instances, as you see, it's a case of we and not I. First of all, then, the three offices. The New Testament describes Christ as priest, indeed as high priest in the letter to the Hebrews. We've been hearing a lot of this recently, have we not, in the liturgy around Easter time. Most of all was Christ high priest on the cross, offering the sacrifice of his life to the Father for our salvation. He is also described in the scriptures as a prophet, teaching and seeing deeply into human hearts. For example, in his conversation with the woman at the well. And before Pilate, he acknowledges that he is a king, but that his kingdom is not of this world. So Christ is priest, prophet, and king. 
The terms are not used as a trio in the New Testament, but the early church started using the trio, the three terms together, with reference to Christ around about the year 300. And then with reference to all Christians baptized and anointed in Christ soon afterwards. The trio was revived with reference to Christ around the time of the Reformation by John Calvin on the Protestant side and by the Catechism of the Council of Trent on the Catholic side. But it was not until the 1950s that it was applied again to all Christians by the great Dominican theologian Yves Congar. The Council eagerly embraced that idea. Lumen Gentium 31, and you see it there in number 15. Number 15 is quite long. We'll go through the different bits of it. But at the top of number 15, it says, you see, all the faithful baptized into Christ share in the priestly, prophetic, and kingly office of Christ. And to the best of their ability, carry on the mission of the whole Christian people in the church and in the world. What does that mean? Well, St. Paul urges the Romans at the start of chapter 12 of his letter to the Romans, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, he says. Everything we do is meant to be offered to God. That's the idea of our morning offering. Lumen Gentium 34 gives some further helpful detail about that priestly offering. That's what a priest does, to offer. To offer means that in some sense you're being priestly. What does this mean here? Referring to the laity, dedicated to Christ and anointed by the Holy Spirit, Lumen Gentium 34, it's the next section there in number 15 where it says priestly. What does it say? Referring to the laity, it says all of their works and prayers and apostolic undertakings, family and married life, daily work and relaxation of mind and body, if they are accomplished in the spirit, indeed even the hardships of life, if patiently born. I think I would say especially the hardships of life if patiently born. All of these become spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But where, we might ask, are those priestly sacrifices actually offered? In the celebration of the Eucharist, where the priesthood of the laity interacts with the ordained priesthood and these two modalities of Christ's priesthood marvelously join together. By means of the ordained priesthood, their specific ordained task, by means of the ordained priesthood, the one sacrifice of Christ is made present at the altar. But then the laity join their own sacrifices to that of Christ so that they can be taken up to God through him and with him and in him, as we say in every Mass. That's how, in close conjunction with the ordained priesthood, 
all of the faithful live a priestly life. Lumen Gentium very carefully stipulates, and it's there in the NB uh, on the, under number 15, that the priesthood of the faithful and the ordained priesthood differ essentially. Yes, we're not muddying the distinction at all. They differ essentially, and not only in degree, which really means, if I might just offer an interpretation there, don't think of one as higher than the other. Don't think in terms of degree. They are simply different, essentially different. But, notice that it says, they are nonetheless ordered one to another. That means that they, either one without the other would not really be able to fulfill its purpose. They work together. They work together. The two priesthoods, or rather the two distinct sharings in Christ's one priesthood, are therefore complementary. They interlock, and that's how the sacrifice of Christ has its full effect in the world. The laity bring to the altar their own lives and work. And in a wonderful phrase, Lumen Gentium 34, just above the NB, says that worshipping everywhere by their holy actions, the laity consecrate the world itself to God. Isn't that a marvellous phrase and a challenging one? If it's the priest's task to consecrate bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, it's the laity's task, we might say, in a complementary fashion, by interacting with what the priest does at the altar, it's the laity's task to consecrate the world itself to God. What a responsibility. It naturally follows, as the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy teaches, that the full, conscious, and active participation of all the faithful is demanded by the very nature of the liturgy. Sacrosanctum Concilium number 14. And we realize in that light that active participation is not primarily physical activity, or doing more things in the liturgy, but what we might call spiritual engagement with the liturgy, such that when we are there, taking part in the liturgy, we are consciously uniting our lives and our work to the sacrifice of Christ on the altar, and wanting to be faithful and fruitful members of his body, by everything we go out to do in the world. Lumen Gentium also highlights the participation of all of the faithful in the prophetic and kingly offices of Christ. And you see those next two little sections under number 15. As prophets, the holy people of God, it says, bear witness to Christ, especially by a life of faith and love by continual conversion, by struggling against the forces of evil in the world, and by evangelizing in word and deed in the midst of everyday life. Lumen Gentium 35. With regard to sharing the kingship of Christ, that kingly office, Lumen Gentium first, rather interestingly, highlights the need to overcome the reign of sin in ourselves, almost to decide, you know, who's boss here? Am I really in charge of 
my own life? Have I, or is sin in control of me? Who's in control here? That's the first place. To overcome the reign of sin in ourselves and then to serve Christ in others. The need to spread, as it said, Christ's kingdom of truth and life, the kingdom of holiness and grace, the kingdom of justice, love and peace. The need to strive for a just distribution of the world's resources and the need, as it says, to impregnate culture and human works with moral value so that through the members of the church, Christ, as the uh, Lumen Gentium 36 says, Christ may increasingly illuminate the whole of human society with his saving light. There's the Lumen Gentium once again. Now let's note that what the faithful bring to the altar to offer in Mass includes, of course, all of their prophetic witness and kingly service. It follows that, in a sense, the priestly office embraces and encompasses the other two. All that Christ himself said and did, indeed his whole life, was offered to God in sacrifice. And the same is meant to be true of us also. I am the priest of my own sacrifice, said Origen, another of the early church fathers. Yes, each of us is the priest of the offering of our own life to God on the altar of our heart. We are all priests in the one priest. And that's why in the Mass, the ordained priest repeatedly says, we in the Eucharistic prayer on behalf of the priestly people with whom he is essentially united and interacting at that point in their distinct modalities of priesthood. In the Eucharistic prayer, he continually says, we pray, we celebrate, we offer, make holy these gifts we have brought to you, and so on. Finally, let's note that the council renewed the early idea that priests are actually presbyters, a body of co-workers with the bishop, whom he sends to represent him in parish communities. So there is a we that is proper to priests as co-workers with the bishop. And moreover, there is a we that is proper to the bishops themselves. The council teaches that each of them takes the place of Christ himself, teacher, shepherd, and priest, there's the three officers again, in the midst of his people. Each bishop is an icon of Christ, so to speak. And the fact that each of them has that same fundamental identity draws them all together to exercise the care and the love and the concern that Christ himself has for the church as a whole. Back in 1870, Vatican I implied that each bishop cares for his own flock and the Pope alone cares for the church as a whole. Vatican II clarified that. While certainly still looking after his own local church, each bishop also has a share in the care of the church as a whole. The bishops form a college, it said, and the college of bishops, headed by the Pope, 
is the successor of the College of the Apostles headed by St. Peter. The Apostles were a tightly knit group. The Twelve is how they're referred to in the Scriptures. The Twelve. And the bishops likewise form a tightly knit group caring for the church in solidarity with one another. That is what is meant by Episcopal collegiality, one of the most famous doctrines of Vatican II found in that third chapter on the hierarchy. So, whether it's the collegiality of the bishops or the fellowship of priests or the communion of the faithful as a whole, it is always a case of we, not I. And as we saw earlier, being made in the image of God, that's what we're made for as human beings. We are made for communion, but the human race is tormented by division and conflict. And only God can save us. Peace I bequeath to you, said Jesus at the Last Supper. My own peace I give you. A peace the world cannot give. That's my gift to you. The Council tried to make us aware of that precious gift, entrusted to us by the Lord for the benefit of the world. Communion is what the Church is all about. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that we all have a part to play in ministering that gift of peace, communion, reconciliation to the world. Have a look just at the final quote, number 16. In her whole being and in all her members, it says, the Church is sent to announce, bear witness, make present and spread the mystery of the communion of the Holy Trinity. Just last Sunday, in his Regina Celi address, Pope Francis recalled those words of Jesus at the Last Supper, bequeathing his gift of peace to his followers. And he said this, The Church is sent by the risen Christ to pass on to men and women the forgiveness of sins, and thereby to make the kingdom of love grow, to sow peace in hearts, so that they may also be strengthened in relationships. Note the emphasis on fostering relationships through love and forgiveness in the name of Christ. It's very clear already, after just one month, it was clear actually within a few hours, that the Holy Father is remarkably attuned to the teachings of the Council that we have been looking at, and especially to the idea that in the Church it's always a case of we and not I. Perhaps, therefore, I might just close with a couple of striking examples. How lovely it was when he appeared on the balcony of St. Peter's for the first time. I'm sure we all remember the scene. And spoke to the people as their new bishop, the Bishop of Rome, 
That's what the Pope fundamentally is. And that is what Pope Francis has been calling himself time and again since that first appearance. On the balcony, you recall, he wanted to bless the people. But first, he asked them to pray for God's blessing on him. And he bowed while they prayed for him. I heard one TV commentator afterwards say, would you believe, that the Pope appeared on the balcony and took a bow. <laughs> as if he was a celebrity making a guest appearance. No. I mean, how wrong can you get in the interpretation? No. He bowed to ask for the people's prayer. And then he blessed them. It wasn't the eye of celebrity. It was the we of Christian community that he was expressing. We take up this journey, he said, and I quote, Bishop and people, a journey of fraternity, of love, of trust among us. Let us always pray for one another. What a wonderful mutuality there. Pope Francis said something else of enormous consequence too as he stood on the balcony. The local church of Rome, bishop and people journeying together, the local church of Rome, he said, presides in charity over all the churches. That's a phrase taken from St. Ignatius of Antioch, writing around about 100 AD, on his way to Rome to be martyred for his Christian faith. Already at that early stage, the local church of Rome was recognized as having a unique place in the communion of all the local churches because the princes of the apostles, Peter and Paul, had both shed their blood there. Rome was the place of outstanding apostolic witness, the center of the new family that was the church. Not governing juridically, that idea came later with the pyramid model that I mentioned around the start of the second millennium when Christian East and West split, 1054 is the traditional date, into the Catholic and Orthodox churches that we still have today. No, not governing juridically, presiding in charity was St. Ignatius's phrase. And that might just help Catholics and Orthodox to come together again with an agreed understanding of the Pope's role in the church. It's urgent that we do come together again. Back in 1979, just as Catholic Orthodox theological dialogue was getting underway, Pope John Paul said that Catholics and Orthodox must move towards reconciliation so that we can stand side by side, and I'm quoting here, in full communion, witnessing together to salvation before the world. The world, he said, needs this sign of unity if it is to be evangelized. Yes, indeed. Unity and peace are the hallmarks of the gospel. Unity and peace are what the world longs for, but only Christ 
can give. Let us pray for Pope Francis, as he so often asks us to do, that he may continue to show us what it means to think as the Council wanted us to think in terms of we, not I, so that through the Church, the light of Christ may shine strongly in the world. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.